Shalom, and welcome to Israel Policy Pod. I'm Neri Zilber, a journalist based in Tel Aviv and a policy advisor to Israel Policy Forum. A very important episode today, where we're going to take a deep dive into the mysterious world of ultra-Orthodox society and politics with Dr. Gilad Malach, the director of the Ultra-Orthodox in Israel program at the Israel Democracy Institute. Uh, Gilad is also a lecturer at Bar-Ilan University and was a member of the Knesset Committee a decade ago, dealing with the issue of ultra-Orthodox conscription into the IDF. But first, a few quick thoughts from me. Despite all evidence of the contrary, Election Day on November 1st is fast approaching. That's the beauty of time, I think. Soon Israel will be overtaken by the Jewish High Holidays, which will take us well into October, after which we'll have a resumed two-week sprint to the finish line of this campaign. As you all know, Israel's fifth election in three and a half years. While a lot can change between now and then, the experts here are looking at three key issues, or sectors as they're called here in Israel, that will likely make or break this particular election. Number one, and maybe most importantly, Arab-Israeli voters and their political parties, in particular, the turnout numbers. High turnout by Arab-Israelis is good for the anti-Netanyahu camp. Depressed turnout amongst Arab-Israelis will be really good for Netanyahu's chances. Second, the Israeli left. Will the two political parties, Labor and Meretz, merge and thereby ensure they both make it into the next Knesset? Or will they continue to run separately and risk one of them not making it over the electoral threshold, thereby almost assuredly handing Netanyahu a victory? That's the second key issue. Uh, And third, the ultra-Orthodox. There's ongoing speculation that the main Ashkenazi ultra-Orthodox party, United Torah Judaism, may split apart ahead of the election, which, like the Israeli left, may put at least one faction at risk of not making it into the next Knesset. This would almost certainly be fatal for Netanyahu's chances. But even more importantly, perhaps, after election day, if Bibi doesn't win outright, could the ultra-Orthodox parties defect to the anti-Netanyahu camp? I personally think there's a better chance of me finding a cheeseburger in Bnei Brak, but it's at least being mooted by some people, which brings us to the subject of today's episode. In political, economic, demographic, and societal terms, the ultra-Orthodox are a major factor and a growing factor here in Israel. Let's get to Gilad Malach. Hi, Gilad. Welcome to the Israel Policy Pod. Hi, Nelly. I'm happy to be here. Uh, it's really our pleasure to have you on. I've been meaning uh, to invite you on for a while now to to get into the subject of today's episode. Uh, and I think these days it's uh, very relevant, uh, as it is usually, uh, to talk about the ultra-Orthodox in Israel. So I wanted to start off here with more of a broad overview regarding the ultra-Orthodox community in Israel, or as they're known, the Haredim, those who tremble or are fearful before God. So, Gilad, I guess the first question, what do we mean when we use this term, the Haredim? It's obviously uh, amalgamation of different groups and sects and ethnicities that make up this community. Uh, You know, they have various different demographics. So set the table for us, if you could. Uh, What do we mean when we talk about this catch-all, the Haredim? Oh, I think that the main point regarding the Haredim is that it's a, a religious group, an extreme religious group, that their main course is uh, worship God and do the mitzvot. And uh, because of that, they see the our world, the modern world, as something that threatens their way of life. Because in general, the modern life is secular life, and and they are afraid that uh, um, having this modern uh, joining modernity will cause them not to continue be ultra orthodox, and therefore they behave and they are trying uh, to to live in an enclave culture in order to be separate and not to be segregated, uh, integrated in the general society. That's a really important point, I think, which we'll get on 
to in a second. Um, and in terms of the various kind of types of Haredim, you have the Sephardic slash Mizrahim from uh, historically Middle Eastern lands and countries. You have the Ashkenazi, ultra-Orthodox and Haredim, which... Uh, to my understanding, are they're broken up into the you know Lithuanian stream and a Hasidic stream. So how do we how do we start making sense of the various types of Haredim? So so first of all, it was important to me to to, to say that there is some uh, common ground between all these groups. I mean, their focus on religious life uh, and rejecting modernity, but. Uh, you, as you said, there are three main groups. Each of them is around one third in, in its size. Uh, in, in the ultra orthodox society, there are the Hasidim that are focused on, let's say, the, the experience, the religious experience, uh, praying, davening, uh, 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 the tish, the, the event that all of the Hasidim comes to the, the main rabbi, Rebbe, it's called, and they are, uh, uh, Dancing and uh, singing together. Uh, these are their their main course in worship God. The, the the experience, and you have the Lithuanians, or sometimes they are called Yeshivish. They came from uh, Lithuania, and they are focusing in uh, studying in the uh, in the brain work, meaning studying Torah uh, very deeply, a lot of uh, years, a lot of time each day. Uh, and this is their main course. And you have the Sephardim, uh, ultra-Orthodox that came from North Africa or from Asia, and, and uh, they are focused, and they, they uh, were influenced very much by, by uh, the Lithuanians, but they have their own traditions. Uh, 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 they, they have a, a separate political party. I mean, the Ashkenazim have... Uh, Yahaduta Torah, uh, United Torah Judaism, and the, the Sephardim have their own party, Shas party, which is much more bigger. And, and these are the differences between the three main groups within the, the ultra-Orthodox society. Yes, we'll, uh, we'll get into the political parties uh, definitely later on in this episode. And Gilad, in terms of the numbers, right, everyone talks about demographics uh, inside Israeli society. Uh, I think at this point, what, the Haredim are up to 11, 12, 13% yes. of the country, yes. over a million Haredim? Yes, there are more than a million, million point two. It's, it's around 13% uh, from the, the Israeli popu- population. But the main point is that they are growing rapidly. Uh, this fact is connected uh, to the differences uh, in their uh, fertility rate between uh, uh, ultra-Orthodox and other population within Israel. Uh, uh, the fertility rate within the ultra-Orthodox is more than six kids per, per uh, woman. It's very high. It's, it's actually it's unique, not just in the developed world, but in the whole world now. Maybe it's the highest rate. Uh, uh, maybe there are one or two states in, in Africa that have the same rate. Uh, and uh, in Israel, in general, although uh, compared to the developed world, it's a high uh, fertility rate, but it's the, in other Israel, it's around 2.5, 2.6. So there are big differences. Uh, you can add to this the fact that that uh, the ultra orthodox uh, uh, couples are getting married very early, uh, around the age of twenty twenty two, so they have a lot of time. They have the will, and they have a lot of time to have a lot of kids. So, so the ultra orthodox society are doubling its size every sixteen seventeen years. So, uh, these numbers are. You know, there are more than million uh, people, million ultra-Orthodox today, but this number will grow uh, in the next 10, 20 years. Also, we will grow very fast. Right. I saw a data point that the birth rate, like you said, for ultra-Orthodox women is like 6.64 children per mother. And for a secular woman, it's just under two children per mother. 
Yes, I, I, I said 2.5 because I include the, the secular, the Masorti, traditional, and also the religious, uh, religious but not ultra-Orthodox. If you take them together, it's, it's uh, uh, 2.6, something like that. Um, but as you, as you see, there are a, a huge differences. And this is why one of the reasons why also policymakers are concerned uh, regarding the ultra-Orthodox uh, because uh, their share, I mean, in the population is growing, but their share in the labor market and, and uh, their education system is not the same. I mean, their education system doesn't give the same tools to the labor to integrate in the labor market like the secular or the modern religious system. Yeah, a uh, huge potential future problem, uh, definitely as the ultra-Orthodox become more and more of, uh, of the demographic here in Israel. Uh, but that's a good transition to, I guess, an exploration into the Haredi way of life, uh, the way of life in Israel, we should say. The stereotype, I think, and Gilad, correct me if I'm wrong, is that the ultra-Orthodox in Israel, they don't really work, or at least don't fully participate in the labor market, especially the men. Um, they prefer to study. Uh, two, they don't study basic things like English and math uh, in their separate schools. Uh, they prefer to study the Torah. Uh, and maybe third, they don't serve in the military, uh, owing to a long-standing exemption dating back to Israel's founding, where the ultra-Orthodox uh, didn't have to serve and they were exempted uh, in favor of religious study. So, first off, how accurate are these stereotypes in your mind? So basically, uh, there is something in these stereotypes. I mean, uh, basically, the, the rate, the participation rate in the labor market uh, of the, the men is very low. It doesn't mean that nobody works. According to the statistics, 50% of the men are working. But if you compare it to almost 90% in the non-Haredi sector, you see a huge uh, uh, differences. And if you uh, add to the fa this fact, the, the, the fact that you mentioned that they, when they study in their, their separate school, uh, schools, uh, the men, especially the men, doesn't uh, study uh, English and math and some other uh, professions, so, so they are not well prepared to the labor market. So even the, the men who are working earn much less than, than uh, secular workers. So the differences are even bigger. I mean, it's not just differences in the participation rate, but it's also differences in earning. And, you know, earning at the end of the day uh, uh, affects the production of the state of Israel, affects the, the possibility to get uh, taxes, because if you don't earn enough, you don't pay taxes. So, so these are the main challenges connecting to, to economy. And in terms of the, I guess, trend lines of these things, you know, do you see more Haredi, especially men joining the workforce? Are more Haredi, I guess, children preferring or opting to study things like English and math? Or is that uh, maybe wishful thinking and selective media coverage by secular Israel wanting it to be true? So first of all, let's let's uh, look on the bright side, the the, the women, uh, uh, and regarding uh, uh, their participation in the labor market and their education system, there was a revolution. Let's say, I mean, the point it's it's very interesting point because usually in conservative societies, women doesn't go to work. And men, of course, men, for, for thousands of years, men are uh, uh, going to work. And, and women are sometimes, you know, in conservative societies, they stay at home. But in the ultra-Orthodox society, the phenomenon was the opposite. And women are working in, in a higher percentage uh, participation rate uh, than the men. So, so we need to understand the, the, the reason for that. And the point is connected to... The, the other subject that you mentioned, serving in the army. The ultra-Orthodox didn't want to go to serve at the IDF, because, especially because they were afraid 
that this will be the full integration in the in the secular society and they saw that you know seventy uh, uh, more than seventy years ago uh, uh, at the establishment of the state of Israel, most of them went to to the army at the independent uh, uh, war and and some of them didn't remain uh, ultra orthodox because they were part of the Zionist so they they became part of the Zionist uh, society and they didn't remain ultra orthodox on the other side the ultra orthodox side is so that people uh, uh, ultra orthodox that studied in yeshivot and didn't go to the army they they got a permission at that time from ben gurion to postpone their service so at that time they were just 400 youngsters that didn't go to the army but the the leaders saw that these youngsters that doesn't serve in the army and continue to study in yeshivot, not just that they remain Haredim, they are, even became rabbis and they are even more religious than their parents. So, so, so in the process of 10, 20 years, more and more ultra-Orthodox young, youngsters didn't go to the army but stayed in yeshivot. So, so, so the, the, the state obliged them to study, to continue to study in yeshivot because if they wanted to go to work, they needed to go first to serve in the army. And as I said, they were afraid to serve in the army. So, so the, the, the result was that in a process of, let's say, around 30 years, most of the ultra-Orthodox men didn't go to work and continue for years to study in yeshivot, and therefore the society became what a famous sociologist, a professor Friedman, called this society, society of learners, meaning Torah learners and not workers. Uh, but in order to to survive, I mean, you you are not familiar with a society that men are not going to work, they had to basically based on support. And there were three main supports. One support is from the state. The state supported more since the 80s and the 90s of the 20th century, supported more uh, yeshivot, supported uh, uh, by uh, children allowances and other supports. And and, uh, this is one of the main reasons why they had to be in the coalition most of the years, because they need this participation in the coalition for this support. The second support was donors uh, abroad, from abroad, from the United States, from the ultra-Orthodox society there. And the third support is based on women work. So regarding women, first of all, this, the state wanted that women, uh, ultra-Orthodox women, will go to work, but also the ultra-Orthodox society wanted them to go to work in order to support the household, the ultra-Orthodox household. The result is that basically the the schools for 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 women prepare them to the labor market and they work in higher participation rate and they earn more. But because uh, uh, most of the men uh, didn't use to go uh, to work, also their schools are not preparing them for that. They are preparing them just to be Torah learners, and this is. The reason why the education system for boys and for girls are so different. Fascinating. Uh, many years ago, when I was reporting on the ultra orthodox uh, and the whole political and social issues surrounding uh, army service and conscription, I was in Bnei Brak and I was told a story about the meeting uh, that you mentioned at the founding of Israel in the late 40s between David Ben Gurion. Uh, Israel's founder and first prime minister, and the the Rebbe, the Chazon Ish, this uh, this famous Rebbe in Bnei Brak. And according to the story I heard, the Rebbe asked Ben Gurion, "When uh, how does this parable go? When when uh, two caravans are coming at each other in a narrow mountain pass, and one caravan is laden with all these goods, and the other caravan is empty." Which caravan, the Rebbe asked Ben Gurion, should make way? And basically, the story I was told is that the Rebbe meant that the 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 caravan laden with all of Jewish history and Jewish learning and the Torah uh, obviously should 
should go first and take precedence over the quote unquote empty caravan of secular and back then socialist Jewish society. So I always found that very, very interesting that they, uh, you know, they wanted to maintain obviously for their way of life, but also that they viewed it as, as something that, that is more worthy of maintenance. Yeah. I mean, I mean in general, this is uh, one of the, the ultra Orthodox main claims that, that, uh, it's very common in Israel to refer to our state as an, you know, an, a Jewish and democratic state. And they say, okay, we are preserving the meaning of Jewish state by studying Torah. So we need the support of the state and we need other things. I mean, but, but you know, policymakers are not entering to, are not dealing with, you know, ideological questions uh, and uh, um, referring, for example, in the labor market, uh, uh, they are seeing a challenge or a problem, meaning uh, the, the combination between participation in the labor market and the, the rapid growth of the ultra-orthodox society. When you put together these two facts, you see that we have a current challenge, and the challenge will be even much bigger in, in 10, 20 years. So we need to do something. Yeah. Uh, and like you said, uh, for economic reasons, for issues of taxation, obviously going to the state from people actually working and also uh, the whole issue of army service, uh, you know, it's termed here for many years, uh, equality in sharing the burden uh, in Hebrew, shivyon banetel, uh, especially in terms of military service. Gilad, where does this issue stand? Um some of our listeners may be aware that this this has been a long-standing issue. Uh, Supreme Court decisions going back over a decade, stating that these ultra-orthodox exemptions from army service were unconstitutional, and then various reform efforts, which I, which I think you were part of, uh, were undertaken. Is has it made any headway in terms of getting ultra-orthodox boys to actually serve in the IDF? So. A, a sentence before referring to the, the service in the army uh, regarding the big picture of, of uh, 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 the men or, and their participants. Uh, uh, because, as I told you, women are participating quite well, quite well in the labor market. And we saw, if I refer to, to a process of 20 years, we saw also a jump in the participation of, of, of Haredi men in the labor market. I mean, it was 35%, now it's 50%. So there is a progress. Uh, 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 but, but we saw that it stopped and there is a stability since 2015, meaning that there was a progress of joining the labor market, but the 50%, we achieved 50% participation in, in 2015 and today, 2022, it's the same as it used to be seven years ago. And according to our analysis, there is now there is a balance, I mean, between the needs of the, the society. Some of, some of them had to go to war because of uh, uh, poverty, but, but also uh, uh, the support that they have from the state gives let's say 50% of them, the ability, uh, the combination between of the support of the state and the work of the women give 50% of the ultra-orthodox the possibility to continue uh, to study Torah and, and not to go to work. And for us, it's concerning and we need to change uh, this stability. So this is one thing. And, and, and regarding the serving in the IDF after... Uh, dealing with it a lot of years, I can tell you that, that uh, frankly, that the potential uh, of uh, uh, ultra-Orthodox from the mainstream, the potential to serve in the IDF is, is, is very limited. I mean, most of them won't serve in the army, uh, basically because of the reasons that I told you, it's, 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 uh, they are afraid of it. Uh, they really believe that studying Torah is much more important. Uh, uh, as I told you, they believe in religious life, so, so it's much more important even than uh, protecting the state of Israel. So, 
So this is the positive reason for them to stay and study in yeshivot. So, so I don't believe that in, in five, 10 years, we will see a great change regarding that. But I can tell you that there is uh, a, a lot of ultra-Orthodox youngsters that are not belong to the mainstream. I mean that they are not studying all day uh, uh, Torah or religious stuff. They are signed in, in yeshivot, but they are sometimes uh, uh, walking uh, in the streets. They are sometimes working. They are st- sometimes spend their time, but they are not really studying. And there is a lot of potential uh, by, by drafting these youngsters. So, so I really believe that the state and uh, entrepreneurs from within the ultra-Orthodox society can, can do more. I mean, today, each year, uh, around uh, 1,200 youngsters from the Haredi society uh, 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 goes to the army, but, but it can be much more than that. This is one thing. But another thing is connected to the majority of, of the men. And here, uh, I'm also part of... of uh, uh, the, the people who deal with the conscription law regarding the ultra-Orthodox. And one of our efforts is that the, the, the age of the exemption from the army will be uh, younger than today. Today, they are getting the exemption of the army, people who are studying in yeshivot at the age of 24. And, and I believe that if the exemption age will be 21, much more of the ultra-Orthodox youngers at the age of 21, where when they are not married or they are just married and, but doesn't have kids, they have much more uh, potential to integrate much better in the labor market than the age of 24. So, so this change in, in policy will cause um, uh, much more integration and the, the, the change in the, the stability in the participation in the labor market. Interesting. So basically putting the labor market and the economic side over the actual military and conscription side. Yes. Uh, for years, the focus, even in, in sharing the, the, the burden that you mentioned, I mean, 20 years ago, regarding most of the uh, public opinion and most of the secular people in Israel, their, uh, uh, criti- the, they criticize the ultra-Orthodox society, especially regarding the service in the army. But today, they are much more concerned from, from uh, their participation in the labor market and not working and not taking part in the taxes. Uh, this is much more concerning uh, uh, most of the people in Israel. Yeah, and uh, on this issue in particular, uh, we should say a, a very prominent Israeli politician began his career, uh, I think, almost exactly a decade ago, on this very issue, uh, demanding to know uh, where where is the money and demanding that the ultra orthodox do their fair share uh, for Israeli society, whether working and paying taxes or serving in the army and then doing reserve duty. Uh, that politician was and still is Yair Lapid, uh, although you know this particular message I think has been softened in more recent years. Uh, we should also say that I heard from the ultra-Orthodox directly during this period, uh, back when Lapid began his political career, that, like you said, you know, the army has an air force, it has uh, infantry corps, it has an armored corps, and the ultra-Orthodox said that we are the Torah corps, that we go and pray for the safety and security of Israel and Jewish people, and that we play just as important a role in defending Israel than uh, a squadron of F-16s or or Merkava tanks. So just on this issue of military service, they, they still see it very differently. Yeah, I, I think that the claim that we are protecting the real protector, this is more apologetical claim, and this is when they are uh, having conversations or uh, with, with secular people. But the main reasons are the main two things that I mentioned. First, they are frightened from uh, the integration that is connected to service in the army. And second, they really uh, uh, see 
Torah learning is something very important and service in the army is less important. I mean, for, for their religious life, it's not important. So, uh, and this is the, the, their main cause, course, their religious life. Yeah. And, and also if, if prayer actually won wars, uh, then, you know, Israel's recent record in military campaigns might be a bit better. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. We'll be right back after this brief message. Israel Policy Forum works to strengthen support for advancing a viable two-state outcome to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict to preserve Israel's future as Jewish, democratic, and secure. We provide constructive policy analysis and pragmatic policy recommendations, produce credible research reports, deliver thoughtful and nuanced commentary, build engaging and innovative educational content, and create informational video content covering critical issues. We are trusted as a reliable resource in Washington and the Jewish community. To explore more of our work on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, U.S.-Israel relations, Israeli politics, Israeli-Arab regional integration, and the future of the two-state solution, read the Koplau column, Chief Policy Officer Michael Koplau's weekly article on current events, visit our YouTube channel for short explainer videos and our 120 Project Israeli election news updates, engage with our young professional network, IPF Atid, or join one of our live video briefings featuring top journalists from the region. Subscribe to receive updates about all of this and more at israelpolicyforum.org slash subscribe. Uh, Gilad, just to give us some context here. So we're talking about the ultra-Orthodox in Israel, uh, a lot of whom don't work uh, and things like that. How different is it from ultra-Orthodox life, say, in America, in the United Kingdom, in the diaspora? where I think ultra-Orthodox do actually work more than they do in Israel. Yeah, you are totally right. I mean, there are great differences between uh, uh, ultra Israeli ultra-Orthodox and other ultra-Orthodox, especially regarding the labor market in, in the United States, in the United Kingdom, in other places, men are going to work, and they participate in the labor market almost the same as, as others. Uh, um, but and sometimes you see differences not just in their participation in the labor market, but also in their education system. There are differences between, especially between Hasidim and Lithuanians and Yeshivish in the United States, for example. Yeshivish not just participate in the labor market, but also their education system. They are studying uh, English, math, other. Other subjects are doing matriculation. Some of them are even going to colleges, and you see that they are uh, uh, in the, the working. Some of them are working in quality jobs, earn a lot. They, they, their households earn more than Hasidic households. But Hasidim, they are more segregated. They doesn't want to learn in a, a lot uh, secular studies or to fully integrate in the labor market. So, so they are working within the, the community and, and they are less. So, so even, even outside Israel, there are differences between the groups, but most of the men outside Israel are working. Imagine that. What a, what a concept. Uh, Gilad, I wanted to shift to more of the politics right now going on in Israel and the ultra-Orthodox. Uh, we should say by way of context that uh, famously the Haredim were not included in this current slash outgoing government led by Naftali Bennett and Yari Lapid. I think it's the few occasions that you maybe can count on three fingers where over the last three decades, the ultra-Orthodox weren't part of a coalition government in Israel. Uh, we should also say the current government on purpose, came in with very lofty ambitions for refer reform uh, in terms of issues of synagogue and state, uh, kosher regulations, civil marriages, uh, education, like we were talking about in the Haredi sector. So how much was this government able to accomplish in its year in power, uh, given all the things that it wanted to do on the issues of religion and state and, and specifically the ultra-Orthodox community? In general, I can say that the, the, the current government didn't do a lot of changes in uh, regarding uh, uh, the ultra-Orthodox society, just to compare it to the previous government that 
שהחרדים weren't part of it at 2013, First of all, the fact that they are not part of the coalition, it means that they got less support. I mean, some of the governmental support is go- coalition support. So uh, the, 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 this society got, uh, let's say, uh, in a one year, less 3 million, uh, 300 million shekels, less than the, the previous year. So, so they, they uh, had... There was an effect uh, to the fact that it wasn't uh, an ultra-Orthodox government or coalition. Uh, but I can say that regarding uh, legislation or other things, it was much less limited, uh, uh, much, much less impact to this government. I think it's because uh, of the fact that some parts of the, this, the current coalition thought about uh, future coalitions Some parts of the coalition uh, were connected to their right wing, so also they feel very close to the orthodox uh, society. So on one hand, there is an effect uh, regarding budgets, but uh, the, the, the usual case of a government without uh, ultra-orthodox party usually does much more than the, the current. Very interesting. So a lot more... talk and rhetoric than actual structural reform and subsidy cutting. Exactly, but although that, I can say that rhetorically within the ultra-orthodox society, there is a feeling that it was a horrible government, but this is for political reasons. I mean, uh, the representative wants to show that it's horrible because they weren't part of the coalition and in order to make all, the, all, all their... Uh, supporters to vote uh, at the day of the elections. So, so this is the main motivation to, to portray it as, as a horrible government. But in, in reality, it wasn't like this. Yeah. Yes. Uh, that rhetoric, not unique to the ultra-Orthodox, uh, when they were voting to disperse the Knesset uh, earlier this summer, the ultra-Orthodox, like the Israeli right wing in general, Uh, called this current government or outgoing government, whatever you want to call it, uh, uh, a, a anti-Jewish government, a left-wing government, and on issues of, like you said, ultra-Orthodox and on other issues, uh, it, was, it was far and away not a left-wing government and perhaps not even a anti-Haredi government. Um, Gilad, just in terms of the internal politics of the Haredi sector. Right now, there's an ongoing debate that has actually made the news here in Israel about United Torah Judaism, which is the kind of Ashkenazi Haredi party that we mentioned earlier, uh, potentially splitting ahead of the November 1st election. Uh, they have to make a decision by next week. September 15th is a deadline to register parties uh, ahead, of the, uh, ahead of election day. And basically, To the best of my understanding of Haredi politics, you have the Hasidic wing of UTJ, Agudat Israel, uh, wanting to take the leadership position of the overall party. And you have Degra Torah, which is a Lithuanian part of the overall party of UTJ, uh, not really wanting to relinquish the leadership position. Is, it, is that accurate? Is it as simple as that? Or are there more, I guess, principled or ideological issues going on? below the surface? I think that basically it's, it's a debate regarding the, uh, represent, who will be the representatives of, of the, the party, meaning today that the agreement is that it's 50-50, meaning 50 of the party is, belongs to Degla Torah, 50 of the party to Agudat Israel, the Hasidic element. 
um, and it is a change because uh, a decade ago it was 60% for the Hasidim and for just 40% for, for uh, the Lithuanians. But the Lithuanians want more. They say 50-50, it's not enough. We want to be the leader. We want to be the first representative uh, who gets the, the position of, of the minister or get the head of the, the um, treasury, finance. Yeah, the finance uh, committee. Uh, so they want the leadership. Although the agreement was that once it will be Agudat uh, Israel uh, and, and the, the other time it will be the Galatora. They want to continue to lead. And this is the main reason for the debate. Of course, there are some ideological differences, but it's not new. I mean, the reason now for, for, for the debate is, is this, this uh, uh, question of who will lead the party and who will get more percents of the representatives. And, and the point is that it's a quarrel that, that we know the, the, the final result because they ought to go together at the end of the day because of the high threshold uh, uh, which is 3.25, I mean, they need to go together because if they will split, one of them, at least one of them won't be part of the Knesset and they, they can't, I mean, it means that for sure the, the right wing won't have, uh, uh, Netanyahu uh, won't have a possibility to, to have 61 and a coalition. It means that the Haredim will have much less power. So we see, I mean, we see the debate, we see the hatred, but we know the final results that most probably 99% that they will achieve an agreement and uh, they will run together. Okay. So you're optimistic. So, so it's, it's, you know, it's like a chicken, like a, a, a Russian roulette, meaning that they are trying to pressure, to make a pressure on each other, but but they had to 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 achieve an agreement. Okay, in the best tradition of Israeli politics, you take it down to the wire, and you at the end usually cut a deal. Um, exactly, the last day, September fifteen, at the evening, yes. there would be an agreement. I mean, most probably. I mean, sometimes you know there is a quarrel, and people you know hate each other, and so so. They are saying, okay, we want to take the risk, but it's a very high risk. Yeah, high risk for them and high risk, obviously, like you said, for the Israeli right and the pro-Netanyahu bloc. Um, before we get to that important topic, uh, just to make it clear for our listeners, you have the Sephardic ultra-Orthodox. They're represented by the Shas party, uh, famously uh, led for many years by Arya Derry. Uh, longtime minister in Netanyahu's government. And on the Ashkenazi Haredi side, you have United Torah Judaism, UTJ, uh, which is itself an amalgamation, uh, like we said, between the Hasidic and Lithuanian streams. So UTJ, Ashkenazi Haredim, Shas, Sephardic Haredim, just to make that clear. Yes. And I, I, I can add, I can add to that that Shas has more mandates. They, they have uh, nine, nine uh, representatives compared to UTJ that has just seven representatives. But the differences between these parties, the difference is that uh, maybe half of the voters of Shas are not ultra-Orthodox. Mm-hmm. They are uh, religious, they are, uh, they are uh, traditionals, uh, and they all, but but they they support Shas and they vote to the Shas party. And this time, there is a chance that some of them won't support Shas, but they will vote for for uh, 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 Benville, uh, which runs with together with uh, uh, the Zionist religious party Smotrich. Yeah, Itamar Benvir and Betel Smotrich uh, running together. Uh, in the religious Zionism party, the the far right, yes, uh, pro settler Kahanist party, yes, and and they are afraid. I mean, this is one of the reasons why Shas and Derry specifically, which at the nineties with with let's say at the center or even a, a, a left wing, nowadays at the last decades, Derry says we are right wingers and we are even right. We will keep 
Netanyahu to be at the right wing in order that some of his supporters won't vote to a party which is much more right wing uh, uh, than, than Shas. They are afraid. So perfect transition, Gilad. On this particular topic, what happened? What happened to the Haredim? What happened to the Haredi political parties? They used to be almost essentially swing voters or swing parties, these free agents that flit between a labor government or even more recently a Kadima government and the Kud governments. But they they were essentially free agents uh, and open to the highest bidder, uh, essentially for, for money, for subsidies. So what happened to them? And, and why did they, especially since 2009, form this very, very close alliance with Bibi Netanyahu, which has effectively kept him in power and acted as a safety net for him for, for 12 years. I can say in general that uh, there are some elements regarding their ten- the, the tendency to the right. I mean, if you analyze the voters, the Haredi voters' opinion, for more than 30 years, we see that they are at the, the, the right edge in the Israeli politics, in their opinion, their, their uh, beliefs, uh, they tend to the right, maybe 90% of the ultra-Orthodox. Uh, uh, but, and, and also you can see regarding uh, uh, the political decisions, you were right that sometimes uh, they decided to go with the left wing or with the center, but, but they preferred since 1977, they preferred to go with the right wing. The only case was that 1988, there was a case that some of uh, uh, UTJ wanted to join uh, 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 Shimon Peres in, in the left wing government, but at the end of the day, Harav Shach, which was the leader of Degel Torah, decided that our uh, connections with, with the right wing, which is much more traditional, are deeper than the, our political views regarding the territories, having the territories. Rav Shach it, itself was, was really supported uh, withdrawing with the territories, but he decided that, that the fact that we are much more close to the traditionals, it's more important than our opinion uh, regarding the territories. So, so if there is a change in the last decade is the fact that even in the in a situation that Netanyahu didn't have an ability to to have a right wing government, and and even even though there was another government led by uh, Bennett and Lapid, they didn't join it. I mean, uh, uh, Shas joined Rabin at 1992 when he had 61 without them, so they joined. Uh, uh, both of the parties joined. Uh, uh, Ehud Barak at 1990-99 when he has a majority without them. But now, when there was a majority without them, or even though there, there was a majority without them, they decided to stay in the opposition, opposition. And this is connected to the magnetic, let's say, uh, uh, effect of Netanyahu on the ultra-Orthodox parties and leaders. And, and uh, this is the main reason for that. In, in my point. So that's very interesting. So it's uh, really almost a, a personal connection to Netanyahu, which brings me to my final question for you, Gilad, and it's a question on many people's minds here in Israel, given the upcoming election. Benny Gantz and his party are essentially telling the Israeli public that we have the easier path to form a government if Netanyahu doesn't win outright, doesn't win a majority of 61 seats, because we, unlike, say, Lapid, uh, can bring the ultra-Orthodox in with us. They'll, the ultra-Orthodox will break with Netanyahu. They'll come with us. Uh, and that way we can form a government. This is what Gantz and his people have been putting out there to the public. So I put the question to you, Gilad. Do you think there's any way that even if Netanyahu doesn't get to 61, the ultra-Orthodox, or at least parts of the ultra-Orthodox parties, break with Bibi? I can say it's, it's a, a very narrow path to, to establish such a government. I mean, we see on previous occasions. I mean, even when 
Gantz was a leader of 35 uh, uh, mandats party. Uh, he didn't succeed. When he got the, the, the permission to, to have a coalition, he didn't succeed to break through the resistance of the ultra-Orthodox parties to join his government. So uh, I'm not sure that this time he will have the ability when he will get, you know, maybe 12 mandats or something like that. Um, so, so I really, and, and of course you can add the fact that they are, res, uh, uh, clearing the fact that they will go with Netanyahu and will continue to go with Netanyahu. Although, I mean, if there is, and it's connected to things that I mentioned, if there is 61 mandats, even if the, there is, uh, will be a support from outside from the United, uh, party, the Arab United party, and there will be another option of coalition without them, maybe some of them, at least some of them, will will decide not to be again in the opposition, with, which has some effect on them, and to join uh, the government. But, but most probably they will continue to be in a close touch in this block with, with Netanyahu. Yeah, as they have been for, for many years. Uh, it's interesting. I, I agree with you. I don't, I don't see that happening. Uh, in, you know, and even if a small part of, say, UTJ, United Torah Judaism, goes with Gantz, I don't think that also gives Gantz uh, enough seats and the numbers to make up. Yes, and of course, not to mention the fact that Lapid, which will have 25 mandates, will Will you need also his will to join <laughs> yes. a, a Gantz a coalition? Yes, uh, and Lapid has no reason to hand a government to Benny Gantz. Uh, but yeah, it, it'll be fascinating. And the ultra-Orthodox, uh, especially now, but always a uh, really, really important and interesting facet of Israeli society and politics. So Gilad, thank you so much for coming on today and explaining it and breaking it all down for us. Thank you, Neri. Okay, that was Dr. Gilad Malach. Many thanks to him for his generous time and insights. Also, special thanks to our producer, Jacob Gilman, and to all of you who support Israel Policy Forum's work, including this podcast. You know who you are. Just remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And as always, thank you for listening. <laughs>